Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So we're here Sunday afternoon, October 17th. Um, not so long, not as long between uh, between recording and when I last seen you, but probably shouldn't have said that. Probably just jinxed us for the next one. Anyways, uh, what are we talking about this week? Yeah, we said we hoped we'd be better in October. So this is, like I said, only a week later and we'll see if we can keep this up. We got to kind of big picture wise, we're going to try to keep these episodes a little bit shorter so that we can um, do some research and, and be okay on a, a couple smaller topics as opposed to longer episodes where it takes a little more research. So um, we're just talking about two things this week. Uh, one was the John Gruden NFL email scandal. And we'll talk about what that means for John Gruden and then a little more broadly about what it says about the NFL and uh, our, our kind of culture as a whole. And then we're going to talk about the brewing conflict between the U.S., China, and Taiwan, and some developments that have occurred over the last couple of weeks that seem to be elevating, escalating the the tension between all of those nations. So, just a couple of a couple of topics this week, but I'm excited to talk about both of them. They're they're very different, disconnected topics, but uh, in, I think some in, interesting conversation to be had about both of them. Yeah, definitely. Looking uh, looking forward to getting into it. Before we get into that, though, we got to remind the people, Ricky, that the, the podcast brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen at Cannon Hill Woodworking. Uh, as you all know, if you've been listening, they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Uh, you can check them out on Instagram or visit them on, on, online at www.cannonhillwood.com. That's Cannon with two N's. Uh, and we were talking last week, Ricky, about you know, holiday season coming up, you got to make sure you got tables and, and you know, got to feed your guests. And then I was all week, I was hearing about how supply chain is disrupted and you got to make sure you get on things sooner rather than later for, for Thanksgiving, for Christmas. So if you are thinking that, hey, I might want to get a table for myself or as a gift for somebody else, now would be the time to reach out to the guys over at Cannon Hill and, and you can tell them that Brendan and Ricky sent you. Like we said, get yourself a table. Everyone needs one. All right. Uh, without further ado, uh, let's get into it. So about a week ago, news broke that John Gruden, who was then the head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, uh, had used racist language in an email from about a decade ago, an email to the now Washington football team's executive there's just so much going on here all right so i'm gonna try to try to break this down so john gruden most people probably know uh, was the head coach of the oakland raiders back in the early 2000s he took them to a uh, super bowl he was the coach when uh, the they played the patriots in the like famous or infamous snowball game the the tuck rule game uh that really launched the patriots dynasty uh, he then went on to Tampa Bay, where he um, 
helmed the Buccaneers to a Super Bowl back in 2004. And he was he was a young coach, right up and coming. He was really intense in the sidelines. He got the nickname Chucky after the like horror movie character uh, and was a very successful, very young coach in the NFL. Uh, very hot name. Um, after a few years in Tampa Bay, he moved, transitioned into media, eventually becoming one of the voices on Monday Night Football and ESPN for about a decade and was one of the you know most recognizable faces and voices in pro in pro football and uh maybe four years ago uh, mark davis the owner of the then oakland now las vegas raiders lured uh gruden back out of the booth with an unprecedented like 10 year 100 million dollar deal like massive deal for any coach longest deal i believe ever given to an nfl coach before and a massive amount of money to turn the franchise over to him so uh, all that to say is that he was a a, was and is a very well known he wasn't just another nfl head coach he is one of like the most prominent uh people in the league so again about a week ago news leaks that in an email from 2011 um, John Gruden had used like racist imagery in talking about DeMarie Smith, who is the head of the NFL Players Association. I believe he said something along the lines of that the man has lips the size of Michelin tower, tires. Uh, and obviously that's kind of a, a trope, a racist trope that has been used for a long time about like the, the size of, of the lips of, of Black people. So Gruden comes out and defends himself and says that it's, uh, you know, he for years has used this type of language to describe people that don't tell the truth. So he used like that, like his reference was not a racist reference, but more one uh, about like people. He refers to people who lie as people having rubber, rubber lips. So that's his excuse. Uh, people could buy it or not buy it. He did have several former players, including Tim Brown, who's an NFL hall of famer, come out and back him up and say, yeah, I've heard, you know, John Gruden used that, that type of terminology before. It's not meant to be racist. It's really just to talk about um, people he doesn't think are telling the truth. Okay. Um, not great, but it seems like that, that has passed. Um, then just on, on Monday, I believe I, I got an, a, you know, one of those news flashes on my phone that John Gruden had resigned. And I was like, wow, it seemed like he had kind of weathered the initial storm over that email. And I was like, man, that seems a lot like, like for him to resign over that, I was, I was surprised by it. Uh, and then it comes to light that that email was just one in a series of emails over the course of like a seven year period where he uses a ton of racist, misogynistic, homophobic language in his emails to other NFL personnel, particularly uh, for the Washington football team. He resigns. There's been a lot of followed over that. Ricky, the day after he resigned, you texted me and said, huh, this Gruden thing would be an interesting thing to talk about. So let's talk about it. What were your thoughts as we're following the saga over the last week or so? Yeah, I have, I have had a lot of thoughts um, and listening to a bit of sports talk radio about um, sort of the specific incident, but more broadly kind of what it says. I think before I jump in, I'm a quick fact check you here. I think the Bucks won in 2002 because the Patriots won in 2004. Yeah, that's embarrassing. I should have But that that's neither here nor there. I think um, I think the reason that this jumped out to me um, because it's really kind of in 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 line with things that we have seen, you know, over the past few years where somebody will have been discovered to have 
you know, either tweeted something or posted something um, that, you know, we see today as very clearly not in line with how, I mean, politically correct or not, I, I think is probably beyond the point, but it's, it, you know, we would deem it, it today as being racist and something that you just wouldn't do. And I think the reason that I started to think about this a little bit more clearly uh, or or deeply is that I think John Gruden, like whatever happens to him is almost besides the point um, for the NFL and for a ton of other sort of organizations. I think we need to think about how does a guy like John Gruden get to send emails to yes, to like, you know, no surprise people in the Washington football team. Um, but also it's clearly, it's clear that it's not just him. And it's clear that a lot of people on the receiving end of these emails didn't see any, you know, major red flags in what they were reading. Uh, and it goes to kind of this broader idea of structural racism. I think it's like a great example. So for the NFL, right, we have uh, a player population that's probably close to 60 to 65 percent uh, black African-American uh, players. Um, we have, I think, four black head coaches and zero of the 32 teams are owned by black people. Right. Or, you know, I think there may be two minority owners. One is in Jacksonville. And I think one is a co-owner of the bills. Um, when we think about the people that are like making the decisions for the league, there is just a lot to confront here. And I, I think on the surface, but, you know, as you were saying with <clears throat> the initial email that was discovered, people could debate, is it racist? Is it not? Did he mean something? Did he not? And I think that that's besides the point because the perception of racism within the league, you know, following the Colin Kaepernick uh, situation, but obviously like that's not the first situation. That's just potentially the most memorable is that, you know, we have a systemic problem in that you don't have proper representation or adequate representation of other viewpoints to sort of check behavior like this. And the thing about, you know, discovering some of these emails, although they were probably intended to be private, at the end of the day, if you put something on paper, you've thought about what it is that you're saying, and you've decided that it is like, you know, it's a, it's appropriate thing to put on paper and to send to somebody, whether or not you ever intended other people to read it. And I think, I don't know, that that for me is just very telling about how a lot of our initiatives to get more people um, of diverse backgrounds involved in things are still working at these like lower, lower levels. And that when we talk about what's going on at the top, that uh, the NFL, for better or for worse, is still a very top down kind of culture like Roger Goodell that, you know, kind of the owners are really setting the tone or setting, you know, who, who is on the teams and who are not. Um, and I think when we look at this more sort of at a macro level, it's, I don't know if can, I don't know if disturbing or concerning is really the word it's, I think it's representative of a lot of things, but I don't know when I, when I heard this case, 
I, I felt like a lot of people would start debating like the specifics of whether or not what he said was really that bad. And I think the real problem is that we just don't have enough people that are in these rooms to call people out because there just isn't that diversity of opinion at the top. Um, that was very meandering, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot. I don't know. Am I going too far? Probably not. I think my initial reaction was kind of what you alluded to in that I was ready to defend John Gruden after the first thing, not to defend what he said, but more to be like, I hate this culture that we have in our, in our society right now, where it's like something someone said from 10 or 20 or 30 years ago is now held up as like, that's who this person is. You know, you grab this one comment out of context and say, this person's a racist or a homophobe or whatever. And so originally like that was kind of my first take, but you're right. Like seeing like the trove of emails and all of the different people that Gruden clearly has some biases toward, I think, and the fact that he's sending these within the higher levels of the NFL circles, right, to other team executives speaks to to a broader culture of acceptance of those types of things. And while I, I still don't know that there's causation between the things that Gruden said and maybe believes about minorities, about women, about uh, gay player people, if you look at the people that he has hired or hasn't hired, right, like the Raiders organization is is not particularly diverse in terms of uh, other coaches who or executives who are black or who are women or who are gay. And I, again, I don't know if there's causation there, but like it's hard not to see some correlation between the guy making most of the decisions who's sending um, demeaning emails about the intelligence of certain black people or certain women or um, gay people. And then seeing like the lack of those types of people in the organization. And, you know, not to mention that he is, in charge of an organization like as you as you mentioned that's probably 70 percent black players and he has the first openly gay active nfl player on his team like there was just no way at that point that he was fit to continue in his job and and should have resigned as he did uh but i I do think it's a, a fair point where this is something that obviously the nfl in particular has has struggled with and i think one of my complaints about the nfl in general is like they they say a bunch of things but what are they actually doing right and like there's like a clear lack the, the worst example is the lack of of black people in uh, management ownership decision making positions right because in that's the worst part because so much of the league is is run by black players uh but there are like glaringly few women in in these positions there are glaringly few like openly gay people in these positions and that's a culture of football that that maybe is starting to change at some levels, right? Like Carl Nassib is the player I referenced, who's the first openly gay player, just came out this past summer. Uh, And like the first woman coaches and women officials just started within the last maybe like five years. And so like, we're starting to see some changes at the lower level and maybe, you know, in fairness, there it takes some time to get up to the higher levels, but that's the reason it takes so much time is because like, it's got to get, you know, that vicious cycle where it's because there are, there's a lack of representation at the higher levels. There continues to be a, 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 like a lack of hiring, um, you know, of these minority people, minority voices. And that, that's something where I know the NFL, like with the, they have a Rooney rule, which like um, requires teams to interview, you know, black coaches for that position before they hire people. Yeah. How do I feel? I don't know. It's like, it's not an easily solvable problem, right? Like we can all see that it's a problem, but to solve it is difficult. I think this is an example of what happens 
one, to your point, that there are not a diversity of voices in the decision-making rooms that cultures like this are allowed to, to thrive and are pervasive now throughout the NFL. Um, but it's, it's not, it's not an easy, I, I gotta, as much as I want to just sit here and criticize the NFL, it's not an easy problem to solve. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not relegated to the NFL. I think it's really something that we're, we're starting to grapple with now. And we've touched on this idea before that, you know, the, the racism of like the KKK or, you know, you know, very like reconstruction period, um, that type of open and out and like outwardly obvious racism, you know, everyone can point to. Um, and that's not really up for debate anymore. Like, is that, is that okay or not? Right. Everybody's on board that that's not okay, but it's this next level of racism. It's the John Gruden's of the world who operate for 10, 20 years, clearly having beliefs that are racist, but they operate in the public sphere um, they say the right things and they do the right things in general so that we never, you know, if he makes a decision to hire somebody or not, he can say, well, I, I made this decision on the merits. But now in hindsight, you look at decisions that he made, like you were, you know, very right to point out, like, what is his staff? Who is his staff comprised of? Has he really ever shown that willingness or, you know, d- does that kind of show up in who he's hired? Maybe not. And I think this is the real problem. Like you said, it's not relegated to the NFL, so it's hard to just criticize the NFL specifically for it. But moving into that next level, like you mentioned, the the Rooney rule that kind of requires that when head coaching positions are open, that um, NFL organizations uh, interview minorities as well as uh, like other candidates before making their decisions. But in spite of that rule, we still only have, you know, four, I think four, maybe five um, head coaches that are non-white. So, you know, we constantly struggle with this idea of we want to make decisions based on the merits of the individuals. And so things like affirmative action or, or even the Rooney rule in this case can sometimes make us feel like, well, this is unfair because we're now elevating certain people because of their race in a way that we hadn't before. But when we step back and look at the landscape of where we still are as a society that our country has, you know, 13 to 14% African-Americans, and yet we have like four or five black CEOs in the in the fortune 500 we have, and yet triple the amount of, you know, 30 to 40% of our prison population is black. Like how do we reconcile those things with the idea that, well, you know, if you're pulling the race card, if you say that something's racist without definitive proof, it's very, you know, that can, that's always problematic because people will sort of say that you're not evaluating the situation on its own and that you're, you know, you're just saying that everything is racist. But when we kind of look at the outcomes of where we are in society, there is that, like the numbers don't add up unless there's something structurally wrong with how we do things. Then like the only alternative explanation, in my opinion, is that you're essentially asserting that if 
if things kind of continue to turn out the way that they have been turning out, that people are that black people are disproportionately in prison and also disproportionately represented kind of at the the highest echelons of our society, uh, you know, one to one extreme and the other, you're you're either asserting some type of racial superiority or you're flat, you know, you're failing to recognize structural inequities that are getting us there. And I think this particular case is one that really shows that, you know, the NFL, like you said, they're doing a lot of the right things now, you know, five years post Kaepernick. Um, but are we really seeing those changes? Are they just paying lip service? And I think that's what a lot of people are, are pointing towards. And the question is like, what, what are people going to be willing to do to change that? That is the question. And I, I don't know, like, I want to talk about that Rooney rule for a minute because I think there, there's part of me that I don't like it because it just kind of reeks of actually not affirmative action, but the opposite. I have the opposite problem. It, it seems like tokenism at some point, like, Hey, I already know that I'm going to hire this other guy, this white guy over here, but I have to bring in this black guy. So I'm just going to bring him in, give him an interview. But that interview was like kind of a fake interview and I'm not really giving him a fair shot to like make his case to be the head coach of my team. Right. I'm doing it because I'm required to do that. And that bothers me. Uh, but then like there's like the unconscious bias part of it is, is so important where like many study after study has shown that even like the people, the most well-meaning people, we tend to hire people that have similar experiences and backgrounds as us. And it might not be explicitly racial experiences, but you know, people of certain races have maybe certain shared experiences that people of other races don't. And I would say the same thing, like gender wise or um, sexuality wise. Right. And so when like, to your point, the, you know, all of the owners and the vast majority of general managers and the vast majority of head coaches are of one gender, one race, one sexuality, like those, you know, consciously or not, you're going to hire more people that have shared experience. Right. And I, I think that's like, that is a normal human thing to do. I'm not trying to criticize anyone because I do think like, that's how, like if we're like evolutionary, like we kind of tend to be tribal, like understandably so. So it's like you do need to increase like the pipeline of what, again, whether racially, you know, uh, gender wise or sexuality wise of people of different opinions. It's just really hard to do. And like if you look at the rule, we're like when we only have one eighth of the league coached by black people and in a league that's 70 percent black players like that's clearly not working i think we probably even have fewer black gms than that like people that are actually making those decisions so again i don't i'm not here with answers for you but it's like i like what, what's happening is clearly not working and uh and i don't know because like I'm, i don't want to at all force people who are like the owners of these companies like they should largely be free to hire whomever they want but if if i want if i want to believe that people should be hired free to hire whomever they want and also believe that like there are unconscious biases that are going to lead to like the disproportionately low hirings of of people of different races or genders or sexualities like it's hard for me to kind of reconcile those those beliefs and i'm not sure at this point how to how i do that yeah i mean i i think part of it for me also is like like you said, do we force them and essentially like heavy handed start saying no, like we just don't have enough black coaches. You guys need to start hiring some and we don't have enough black GMs. We need to start hiring some and we need to figure out a way to divest some ownership stakes and spread up, 
spread it around because obviously there are other takers. It's just a very hard, you know, it's a very restrictive league to get into. Um, do we need to mandate those sorts of things or do we allow, are we like comfortable with the progress that we're making? I mean, like a corollary is like the black quarterback, right? Like that was a very, for a long time, there was an actual perception. It was, you know, absurd in hindsight, but this was a real thing that, that black players were not smart enough to play the quarterback position. You look at the NFL today and now we have a ton of black quarterbacks, some of whom are the best quarterbacks in the league. Um, So is it, is that almost a justification for we should allow things to kind of continue to take their course? Or is that alternatively like, no, we just need to put more people in there because quite frankly, you know, white general managers are failing all over the place as, as, as anybody may succeed or fail at any position. And so it is incumbent upon us to just like force the issue a little bit here. I think one of the other things that you sort of touched on that in, in my rambling, I kind of, uh, I meant to come back to, but, but didn't quite is, is the question of, you know, is it unconscious bias or is it, uh, something that people are aware of, but they know sort of socially it's unacceptable to express it. So they, you know, come up with more creative ways to make these justifications for, for their decision-making. And I think that that really is the toughest thing for anybody who's in the minority to kind of combat is when decisions go against you, just not knowing is this going against me purely on the merits or is this going against me because of the color of my skin, my sexual orientation, my gender. Um, And often people will come out and say, like, I believe this was done to me on a, you know, because of my race or because of who I am, you know, whatever that differentiating standard may be. And oftentimes will people will say, well, you know, there's no proof of that. Like we can't, like there's, you know, somebody made a decision and, you know, we can't point to anything that says that they made this other than, you know, whatever they rate weighed some pros and cons and they made that decision. And I think that that is <clears throat> when people get upset about people who bring up the issue of race or, you know, gender in these things, which I, I probably account myself among those people that sometimes I'm like, well, that couldn't be, you know, that couldn't be racist or that couldn't be sexist. Like, or it, you know, it could be, but there's so many other alternative explanations, but I, I guess, yeah, I keep coming back to at the end of the day, we look at the outcomes and the outcomes suggest that whether individual decisions are made um, with those biases in mind is probably irrelevant. The overall picture of where we are today as a society kind of kind of tells the tale like we don't have to know if every individual person is racist but there is like that element to it um and then i also like heard in reading a few articles about this read a number of comments about well everybody's a little bit racist and everybody you know what about reverse racism and things like that and and i think this is where it comes down to that that power dynamic that like we could actually accept that in 
that everyone has these unconscious biases and that this is honestly a part of being human is that we have to take it, ha- it, it, it requires effort to like really try and recognize when we are being biased or when we're sort of making a decision on the merits. But the problem is when all of the people in power look the same way, you know, and are the very same type of people that all those unconscious biases are kind of directed in one direction. And like, it doesn't, only a certain group of people ends up being on the, the short end of the stick there. It's like almost like if, if everyone had an equal opportunity to get the short end of the unconscious bias, you know, we could laugh about it a little bit more, but here we're sort of seeing a systemic problem for certain types of people. And it really goes towards like the, you know, the, the American dream of like, everybody has that chance to, to be somewhere, to be <clears throat> whoever they want to be. Um, but certain people have less of that chance than others. Um, huge leap from where we started with John Gruden and his emails, but it was for me like very, uh, you know, sometimes I get a little bit too high in, in my forest and miss the trees, but, um, <laughs> this is where, this is what I just, I went down a few rabbit holes and that's where I ended up. No, I guess I, I give you credit. Cause you said John Gruden. And I was like, all right, great. That'll be a five minute conversation. <laughs> but that was, I didn't, I didn't see that vision there. So it was cool to watch it play out. I think that was a worthwhile discussion. So I, I appreciate you, you know, making sure that we included it this week. Definitely. So this is a story I've been kind of keeping an eye on the past couple of weeks. And this is the United States, China, Taiwan relationship here. Uh, And not that we're going to go in huge depth today, but there are some things in the past couple of weeks that I thought were at least worth worth talking about and kind of like keeping an eye on to see what, what happens over the next coming weeks and months. And so I guess to give some background to this, uh, Taiwan is an island off of the coast of mainland China. Mainland China considers Taiwan part of, of it. Like right, China believes that it, Taiwan should be rightfully part of China. Um, Taiwan asserts its own independence. Uh, and so that's obviously a natural tension there. The United States under the Trump administration recognized Taiwan and signed a big weapons deal with them. This dramatically increased tensions with between the United States and China. Um, and the Biden administration has largely followed the Trump administration's lead here. And while previous U.S. administrations had maybe tacitly supported Taiwan, because Taiwan is, again, I should have said this from the jump, Taiwan is a democratically run country in direct contrast to the, the communist regime of, of China. Uh, and so while pre- previous U.S. administrations had maybe tacitly, like, supported Taiwan, uh, the Trump administration was far more, it made a bigger leap and was much more public in its support of Taiwan, uh, including, so in the last couple of weeks, the reason I want to talk about it now is in the last couple of weeks, there have been reports that came out that uh, Marines have been stationed over in Taiwan for the last year or so, and they have been supporting and training Taiwan's military and, and making sure that 
should anything, if a conflict should theoretically escalate between China and Taiwan, that Taiwan would be able to defend itself. Um, just last week, Taiwan held some military exercises, which, you know, from if you were just looking at it objectively, look very similar to exercises you would see in North Korea or China, where you have all of the soldiers marching down the streets, they're parading their weapons off. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I have to recognize my own biases here, right? Like when North Korea does it, I'm like, oh, those scumbags, you know? And then when Taiwan does it, I'm like, yeah, Taiwan, you show them how powerful you are, you know? Uh, and so, but I guess I'll be totally honest. Like that's because Taiwan's a democracy and I believe in democracies, whatever, sue me. Uh, but so like that kind of showed some escalating tensions. Uh, and then the China came out and rebuked the foreign, the UK, the United Kingdom foreign minister because Apparently, Lithuania, who knew? Someone can follow this path, credit to you. So Lithuania has allowed a Taiwanese embassy in their, in, in, Lithu- in Lithuania, Vilnius is their capital. So there's a, there's a Taiwanese embassy in, in Lithuania and Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, which are three countries um, kind of close to Russia up um, in the north, the northeast part of Europe, uh, had come out and said that they, they stand with Taiwan. And the UK came out and stood like with they had the UK had meetings with Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia last week. And they came out and said that we we will also support uh, Taiwan in like they're standing up to the dangers posed by China. And so China comes out and rebukes the UK and Lithuania. And so it's it's all of these kind of escalating things. Then finally, just this past week, it was discovered that last year China sent a hypersonic missile nuclear capable missile around the world like around the globe and it like this this report like shocked u.s intelligence like they had no idea that china was capable of this and someone said i believe the headline was like this is the sputnik moment of 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 the u.s china conflict and for those historians out there people know that um the ussr the soviet union back in 1957 launched the sputnik satellite which uh precipitated first the space race and the arms race throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s between the United States and the Soviet Union. Pretty much the comparison that this author was making was that China's ability to do this is going to spark another arms race between the countries because, you know, the United States sets up a missile defense system in Alaska, and now China is testing weapons that can go over the South Pole. So the United States has to respond in kind, and it's like these arms races, as we know from history, are incredibly expensive, incredibly dangerous races that take billions of, upon billions of dollars, years and years. And there is no finish line. Like there's no, there's no victory in these races. It's just the, the, the next thing. How do I get to the next thing? And so all of this to say is we've known that U.S. Chinese tensions have been escalating for really this entire century as China has, you know, flexed its muscles and wants to assert itself uh, as a world superpower approaching the level of the United States. I think most people would probably agree that China has probably surpassed Russia, maybe surpassed the United Kingdom as you know the, the number two superpower in the world. I mean, that might be up for debate, but if it's not there already, it's certainly heading that way. And we've seen this in a couple other things. We've seen like the United States, Britain, and Australia come to their deal just a few weeks ago to equip Australia with nuclear submarines, which was the first time Australia is going to have access to nuclear weapons. It becomes only, I think, maybe the the 10th or 11th country in the world have access to nuclear weapons. And so all of these measures that the United States is making, whether it's in Australia or in Taiwan, are designed to counter the the growing Chinese influence. And so it's just been something to me that this 
this is poor, this seems to be foreshadowing a greater conflict, a budding conflict that's coming. And I, I wanted to at least bring it up and see see what your initial thoughts were. And again, not that there's anything like very like there's no current specific conflict to talk about, but it just seems to be an escalating conflict that seems to be um, coming to a head at some point. Yeah, I mean, definitely credit to you for bringing this up. As you know, I'm probably my major news source is the New York Times. And I honestly, I was flipping through headlines over the past few days, like week or so, and really didn't come across you know anything that's been going on over there um in terms of i think what is you know they're really you know focused on kind of some domestic issues but this is definitely um a reasonably big deal in that there had like as you 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 know you certainly mentioned the escalating tensions i think people have been talking about a second cold war uh, this time between the U.S. and China for a long time. And so in that respect, maybe there was nothing particular, but there were um, a few weeks ago, the like uh, the Chinese like National Day parades that were really intended or, or a lot of those exercises were intended to show Taiwan that like, look, it may not be tomorrow, but it's coming where you're, you know, you're going to be a part of China again. Um and then, of course, you know, as you mentioned, the various arms deals, <clears throat> and then now, you know, now the 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 question that will hang over us is, you know, what is the U.S. prepared to do to kind of back a, a democratic um, Taiwanese government? Um, I don't know. This again, a lot of I th- I think I think. I, I think one of the things that jumped out to me is how how similar, but also how different this situation is versus um, the Cold War, the USSR in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So um, similar, you have perhaps the world's greatest uh, democracy economically and from a, a military standpoint in the United States and, you know, the preeminent communist power in China right now, uh, sort of supplanting where the USSR was in their, in terms of their sphere of influence. But today, unlike that time, um, the globalization of like the past 20, 25 years that has really enabled China to get to where it is, is one that has really intertwined our economies in a way that you know, we really never were with Russia following World War II, right? So it adds a very different layer to um, to how some conflict like this might progress because the U.S.'s greatest import partner is China, um, as as one of its top three export partners are is also China. Um, China does a China, you know, reciprocally relies a ton on the amount of goods and services they can sell to both the U.S. and the European Union. Um, And so the thought of, you know, there is going to be a lot of 
language as in around, you know, what, what are we as a self-determinant country allowed to do and Taiwan being in China's backyard and really not being in ours, um, you know, they're going to have a very different feeling about, you know, what is right and what is wrong here. Um, but then to the extent to which anybody's really willing to do anything, um, I, I definitely think we're in a different place sort of from a strategic relations standpoint than we were with Russia um, in the 70s and 80s. Like, can you see it really evolving to a point where we're launching nuclear warheads against each other? I certainly hope not. Um, and to, obviously, you point out, like, economically, we're so intertwined. And I think that's been a, a key part where I think there's, like, huge bipartisan agreement here that we need to as as quickly and as deeply as possible, like disentangle ourselves from the Chinese economy as much as that we can and understand that, of course, we're going to continue to import Chinese products and we're going to continue to export a lot of our products, particularly, you know, some of our farming products. China is like a big you know, buyer of those products. Uh, but are there other ways? And we've seen this with what's what's the Chinese like computer chip company, Hawaii? Uh, Huawei. Huawei. Well said. Uh yeah, and like we've like placed a lot of like international restrictions and sanctions on on the company and their executives, and trying to like take some of those uh, the the making of those types of products back to the United States. We're trying to become more energy independent, like all of those things. Uh, I think that's necessary, and maybe is some other foreshadowing of like we see a conflict coming, and as much as we can, we need to make sure that we are able to survive a potential loss of the Chinese as an economic partner. I think like, who knows if it actually ends up happening, but like, I feel like this is one of those things that if anything ever happened, like in hindsight, historians would point and be like, well, the United States could clearly see this coming for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I, so I think that that is um, a lot of what we're going to see. I think there was, no, I forget the name of it. There was a, a giant bipartisan bill uh, th- that, was essentially aimed at like developing technologies on home soil in direct, you know, as a direct counter to some of the stuff that, that China has been doing. And it, it kind of, it came up right at the, right around the time of our discussion around is bipartisanship dead. And, you know, unfortunately probably could have brought it up then. Anyways, I, I do think this approach, this idea of, well, if we're going to get into a fight with China, we should make sure that we're not dependent on them for anything is an interesting one because as you know, I'm a huge proponent of like the idea of the European union, which is really founded on the, this premise that, Hey, if we really sort of interweave our economies, it will make it almost impossible for us to go to war with each other the way that we did in World War I and subsequently in World War II. Like it would just be so devastating to us to go to war with ourselves that, you know, this idea of creating economic dependencies is actually the greatest safeguard against future conflict. And for me, I think given the level of globalization that we're seeing and the level of entanglement, I think, you know, like you 
I think are right to point out, we would be naive not to make some contingencies for that. But I would definitely be more afraid if our initial approach was, well, let's let's pull back so much that a conflict wouldn't devastate our economy such that we bring the circuit, you know, the the conditions about that a conflict actually wouldn't devastate their economy either. And now all of a sudden it's like we're we're in a, a much scarier place, I think. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, and again, I'm not advocating for like uh, increasing the, the conditions to allow for a potentially serious conflict with China. Uh, I will say that the difference for the EU is while they have very different leaders and many different forms of government, they are not antithetical governments in the sense that a democracy is with a communist regime. And, and uh, you know, China and the United States, they, they kind of, I think fundamentally, at least on the leadership levels, believe very different things. And I think that's different than Germany and France coming together and saying that we're, we're going to tie our economies together. Um, so I, I do that. I, I understand the point. I think it's a good one. I just, I do think there's some differences there. I, I, but to your other point of like, how far are we willing to go? I think that really does become the question because, you know, as, as, as strong as Taiwan might be for an island of its size, and they, they have certainly bolstered their military capabilities. You know, the truth is that if China, if and when China wants to take Taiwan, they can and they will. Um, and I don't know that it's, this is just a theoretical possibility. Like we saw what happened with Hong Kong well, the, a year and a half ago, two years ago, right, where Hong Kong and China had a disagreement that China, the Chinese government was going to stay out of, you know, how China, how Kong, Kong governed itself. That was, you know, an international agreement signed and China was pretty much was like, nope, we're not going to do that anymore. Like, we're, we're going to take Hong, Hong Kong and no, no one really did anything. Like, Hong Kong had their protests and the Chinese, like, used surveillance to arrest all protesters and put them in jail. We haven't heard anything about Hong Kong in a year because China squashed those protests. Like, and I mean, it's just a, it's a brutal regime. Uh, and, you know, maybe this is something that happens in five years or maybe happens in 10 years, but I don't think it's unrealistic to think that China is looking at Taiwan and saying sooner or later, we're going to take you back. Yeah. And that, and that may be so. I, I mean, it's hard to put like a hypothetical comparison on this, but, you know, a, a lot, a big part of what has been escalating the tensions is that apart from just sort of verbally saying, you know, tai, Taiwan is a democracy and we're a democracy also, and they're more aligned with our values. And so we support them. We're also, as as you mentioned, giving them arms and giving them money. Um, you know, like hypothetically speaking, if if Hawaii decided that it wanted to be a communist regime and then all of a sudden started to make arms deals with China, I think we would have a very big problem with that. And you know, like you you could see, and I, I mean, it's it's I don't know. It is hard to say. Like, are we? doing the right thing i think in 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 a from a moral and we've talked about this before there are a lot of places that we could take moral stands and feel like we have the high ground and thus like whatever we're doing if we're doing it in support of that and you know it's always the right decision right i think because communism is 
a much smaller portion of the world's like economy. Obviously, China's the big one, but they're not even really a communist government. It's more autocratic with like some. Uh, I mean, if you look at how Chinese government or Chinese companies and industries have uh, exploded over the last twenty years, you wouldn't say that that was a result of communism. Quite the opposite. I don't think it. Yeah, it's not a communist economy. I do think it's like a communist government in the sense of like that's you know how communist governments have always operated. But like their economy is definitely a, a blend, as you rightly point out. Yeah, yeah, right. I think they have all uh, tend to turn towards the the autocratic. I mean, obviously, Xi Jinping has basically squashed all dissidents within China uh, and basically made it one party rule over there. Um, which has had its advantages and disadvantages um, for for quite some time. But I I think because of how well integrated China sort of is within the global supply chain, that like figuring out different ways to put pressure on them economically in ways that are mutually beneficial because like you know, like it or not, we've been able to kind of explode our own economy because of our reliance on cheap, very highly specialized technical capabilities that China provides. Like it, it's been a huge part of our growth for like the last 15 years or so. So figuring out, and yeah, I think this is one of the few areas where I tend to be the far more optimistic, less realistic person than you are like i feel like there just has to be a solution that isn't like you said this like unfettered arms race i hope there is i like i don't i don't want to be all doom and gloom and saying that we're inevitably heading to a conflict with china but the way china has been operating this century i that's it seems in some ways inevitable to me and i do think like you the question you pose of like how far are we willing to go i think is a fair one because you know if if we if you know again this is all hypothetical but if we let taiwan fall like what's our you know allegiance to the philippines or you know to japan and australia and south korea right so uh and again those are those are different situations but i china doesn't seem like someone that is uh you know, going to stop at Hong Kong or stop at Taiwan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, geographically, those are very, very different situations. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. And again, like, this is maybe I've gotten too hypothetical at this point that my, my whole point was like, I want this to be kind of on our radar, like in something that we hadn't really talked about at all. I, that you know, when we see it in the news, if we see some things, this is at least something we've talked about and considered and um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. My, I, I, I hope that you are more right that modern economies and the, how tied together everyone is would prevent an arms race, would pre- prevent you know, military conflict, but we'll see. <laughs> Indeed, we will. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began 
Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share as we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days will leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. And folks are different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for. The hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz